1: On August 18, 1920, the ratification of the 19th Amendment granted American women the right to vote after a century long struggle. But the win was bittersweet. Not all women were now welcome at the polls. Instead, state level voter laws and fees, some of which still exist, albeit in different forms today, prevented many women of color from reaching the ballot box. To suffragists of color, such restrictions were no surprise. Women of color had endured racism within the women's suffrage movement from the start at times being asked to start their own organizations or to hold their own separate demonstrations. Among those activists was Ida B. Wells Barnett, a sharp and talented Black journalist, teacher, and demonstrator who spoke out extensively against both sexism and racism. At just 20, Wells armed herself with a pistol and traveled Jim Crow's America to report on extreme violence committed against Black people, even in the South. And later, When white suffragists quietly asked her to march at the back of the Women's March on Washington in 1913, she loudly refused. She helped found the NAACP and continued advocating for the rights of black women long after the 19th Amendment failed to deliver on its promise of giving people like her the right to vote. This is her story. You're listening to History Uncovered brought to you by the digital publisher All That's Interesting, where we explore all things weird and bizarre in the natural world and the world past. I'm ATI's associate editor Leah Silverman, and today I'll be joined by our assistant editor Megan Liscombe to talk about Ida Wells, a Black activist who championed women's rights and civil rights at a time in America when discussing either could be dangerous. Although the women's suffrage movement was actually in part born out of the abolitionist movement in pre-Civil War America, some suffragists were not without their prejudices. And their racism, however subtle or overt, would splinter the women's movement and hamper the rights of black suffragists from before the war until the 19th Amendment was passed a century later. But before the splintering occurred, the women's movement and abolition grew together Even famous abolitionist Frederick Douglass was one of the 100 people who attended the first conference on women's suffrage in 1848, otherwise known as the Seneca Falls Convention. Meanwhile, prominent suffragists like Lucretia Mott and Elizabeth Cady Stanton came from abolitionist families. However, women were often excluded from conversations regarding abolition, as they were often excluded from any conversation regarding the future of the country. And so they formed their own committees, which gave them the space to practice advocating for their own rights. For example, in 1833, Lucretia Mott helped found the Female Anti Slavery Society, which had both black and white members in leadership roles. And when both Mott and Stanton were excluded from attending the World Anti Slavery Convention in London in 1840, they resolved to hold their own. In 1866, Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton formed the American Equal Rights Association. AERA, with Frederick Douglass and other activists, a group whose goal was to win voting rights for, quote, both women and African Americans, quote, quote. But both during and after the Civil War, women's suffrage took a backseat in the public discourse. It was the, quote, Negroes hour, as abolitionist Wendell Phillips famously claimed just after the war. Women were urged to stand back while the fight to liberate slaves and win rights for Black Americans gained increasing attention. Meanwhile. Black women remained the most overlooked demographic in the U.S. But the end of the Civil War posed a whole new set of challenges to certain suffragists. When the 15th Amendment was passed in 1870 giving Black men but no women the right to vote, some suffragists including Susan B. Anthony vocally opposed its ratification. And as a result, AERA dissolved and the women's movement split from the movement to win rights for Black Americans. Suffragists like Anthony and Stanton, who opposed the 15th Amendment, even tried to convince white male Southerners that if white women could vote, then they could drown out the black male vote. From there, the struggle for women's suffrage came to prioritize the voices of white middle-class women over women of color. The 1901 and 1903 National American Women's Suffrage Association conventions in Atlanta and New Orleans both barred African Americans from attending. And in the words of black activist Mary Church Terrell, suffragists of color would have to carry quote, the double burden of blackness and womanhood. It was in this tense moment that Ida B. Wells was born. In 1862,
0: Just six months before the Emancipation Proclamation went into effect, Ida B. Wells was born the child of slaves in Mississippi. She grew up during the Reconstruction period, when black men were allowed to vote and even held congressional offices in some southern states. Her father, James, was a founding member of Shaw University, now known as Rust College, and he raised her and her seven siblings to value education as a path to equality. But in 1878, When she was 16, Wells dropped out of school. Her parents and one sibling had just died suddenly from yellow fever, and remaining family members wanted to split her brothers and sisters up into foster homes. Wells resisted this idea and chose to stop her education so she could keep her family together. She lied about her age to get a job teaching at a nearby high school and spent the next two years taking care of her siblings with help from an aunt and grandmother. Around this time, the gains black people had made during Reconstruction began to fall away as the Supreme Court ruled against the Civil Rights Act of 1875. This legislation had guaranteed African Americans equal treatment in public places and made it a federal crime to deny service to an individual on the basis of their race. Instead, segregation was institutionalized through a batch of legislation known as the Jim Crow laws. These laws claimed to give black citizens separate but equal status, but in fact did not deliver on the latter. Soon, as an activist and journalist, Ida B. Wells exposed how very separate the world inhabited by African Americans truly was and how far from equal. By 1884, 22-year-old Ida B. Wells had returned to her education and was enrolled in college in Nashville. That year, a train ticket jump-started her rise to prominence as a civil rights activist. On her way back to school in the spring, Wells bought a first class train ticket to Nashville and boarded the all white car. When a conductor asked her to move to a segregated car, Wells refused. As she later wrote in her autobiography, I refused, saying that the forward car was a smoker, and as I was in the ladies' car, I proposed to stay. The conductor tried to drag me out of the seat, but the moment he caught hold of my arm, I fastened my teeth in the back of his hand. I had braced my feet against the seat in front and was holding to the back, and as he had already been badly bitten, he didn't try it again by himself. He went forward and got the baggage man and another man to help him, and of course they succeeded in dragging me out. But she didn't stop there. Wells sued the railroad company and actually won $500 in a local court. However, the railroad appealed the decision, and the Tennessee Supreme Court overturned the initial ruling, Ordering Wells to return the settlement plus an additional $200 in damages. Next, Wells sold her story to local newspapers and began writing passionately under a pen name about racial injustice in America. After finishing school, she worked as a teacher in a segregated school in Memphis. In 1891, her writing on the sad condition of blacks only schools in Memphis cost her her job, but Wells kept fighting. In 1892, a friend of hers was lynched after defending his shop from a white crowd, so Wells began a crusade against these extrajudicial killings. She traveled alone across the United States, doing some of America's first investigative journalism to document lynchings and the alleged crimes that caused them. In 1895, she published her reporting in a book called The Red Record. In this book, she backed up her passionate activism with statistics, demonstrating that the majority of lynching victims were black men who had committed no crimes at all. After this, she settled in Chicago, where she married fellow journalist Ferdinand L. Barnett. Wells continued to organize in her community as a tireless advocate for equality. And in 1909, she was a founding member of the NAACP. But still, despite her fearless reputation and incredible resilience, when Ida B. Wells wanted to march with white suffragists in 1913, they told her she would need to either start her own march or walk at the back of theirs. The women's suffrage procession of 1913 was monumental for several reasons. It was the first suffragist march in Washington DC and the first time a large group of people carried out an organized march on Washington for a political goal. Planning for the procession began in December of 1912 and on March 3rd, 1913, Somewhere between 5,000 and 10,000 suffragists and their supporters marched down Pennsylvania Avenue. A suffragist named Inez Milholland led the procession, wearing a cape and riding a white horse. Delegations of suffragists grouped by state followed behind her. The procession concluded with a rally and speeches from suffragists like Helen Keller and Anna Howard Shaw. Despite being told to march separately, Ida B. Wells was there too. Initially, Wells had decided not to march at all, But as the procession was underway, she burst into the delegation from Illinois, linked arms with white suffragists, and marched for the right to vote. And in doing so, she also marched for the right for black women to be seen.
1: So based on my research, many white suffragists struggled with whether or not to include suffragists of color in the 19 Women's March at all. For instance, Alice Paul may or may not have actually asked Wells to march in the back. However, Paul did allegedly tell another activist that, quote, the participation of Negroes would have a most disastrous effect, unquote, on the women's suffrage movement. Even some local chapters of NASA National American Women's Suffrage Association, were segregated, and Stanton and Anthony allegedly pandered to white Southern males for the women's vote by saying that white female voices could drown out those of Black male voters. The march ultimately wasn't segregated, but the fact that some white suffragists even considered it showed that they were largely more concerned with appealing to white Southern males than they were with giving suffragists of color equal voice in the movement.
0: And unfortunately, it seems that after white women were shut out of leadership positions in the abolitionist movement, they began to see their struggle for the vote as separate from Black women and other women of color.
1: Generally, it seemed like the white suffragists couldn't agree on how best to win the vote, and they thought of Black suffragists as a sort of hindrance to it. Overall, the women's movement at this time was more focused on the needs of white middle-class women than it was on women of color or even working-class women. And the
0: problem of racial division in feminist movements isn't over. Since the 1913 March, mainstream feminist movements in the United States have still tended to reflect the concerns of white women more than Black, Indigenous, and women of color. Even as recently as the annual Women's Marches that began in 2017, organizers were criticized for centering white women. And in 2019, several organizers of the march were forced to step down over allegations of anti-Semitism.
1: We don't want to demonize the work of suffragists like Stanton and Anthony or even of feminists from 2017 and 2019. But it is important to remember that they were not without their own shortcomings, and that in many ways, their work actually stalled the rights of women of color. The problem with racist suffragists, besides the fact that they're racist, is that they overlooked Black suffragists. In this world where it's the voice of white women versus that of Black men who had already earned the right to vote, Black women are basically invisible. Perhaps that's how discriminatory voter laws were able to persist until well into the 60s and even into today.
0: In fact, the right to vote remains a challenge for many. According to the ACLU, 34 states have identification requirements at the polls. Seven states have strict photo ID laws under which voters must present one of a limited set of forms of government-issued photo ID in order to cast a regular ballot, with no exceptions.
1: Even today, we're seeing how our right to vote can be so easily obstructed as mail-in ballots become more difficult to cast.
0: These laws and USPS limitations prevent Americans that are unable to attend the polls safely or who can't access these documents their right to vote. And these voters are disproportionately low-income, racial and ethnic minorities, the elderly, and people with disabilities.
1: As we tentatively celebrate the 100-year anniversary of suffrage, It's important to note that only a specific kind of suffrage was achieved in 1920, and that many Americans are still fighting for theirs.
0: Following the Women's March in 1913, Wells became part of a delegation that urged President Wilson to pass non-discrimination laws in federal jobs. She was elected as chair of the Chicago Equal Rights League in 1915 and in 1918 organized legal aid for victims of the Chicago race riots. And as the nation moved into World War I, the U.S. government placed Wells under surveillance labeling her a dangerous race agitator. And even that didn't stop her. She continued to lobby for the rights of black workers and to ruffle feathers as a civil rights activist. She even ran as an independent for a seat in the Illinois Senate, but she wasn't successful. She died in 1931 at the age of 68. Meanwhile, even though the fight for suffrage ended for white women with the ratification of the 19th Amendment in 1920, it did not end for women of color. In 1923, A group of suffragists proposed an amendment to the Constitution that prohibited all discrimination on the basis of sex. But this Equal Rights Amendment has never been ratified, which means that there is no nationwide law that ensures equal voting rights for all Americans. And since then, the 24th Amendment was passed in 1964, which prohibited the use of poll fees. Up until that point, some states actually charged their citizens a fee in order to enter the polls, which excluded anyone unable to pay from being able to vote. Ida B. Wells' fight for racial equality still continues today, as gerrymandering and racist voter ID laws still prevent Americans of color from participating in their civic duty. It's been 100 years since white women earned the right to vote, but women of color are still fighting. And as the recent controversy over the contemporary Women's March shows, the question still remains. How can one movement represent the concerns of a group as diverse as American women? Learning the stories of women like Ida B. Wells, who is being honored this year with a posthumous Pulitzer Prize, is one place to start. Thanks for listening to History Uncovered. I'm History Uncovered's producer, Kit Westneat. If you like the show, help others find us by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And be sure to follow the All That's Interesting and History Revealed pages on Facebook and Real History Uncovered on Instagram. Make sure you don't miss out on the new episodes and subscribe to the History Uncovered podcast. And keep up with our latest stories at allthatsinteresting.com. If you have a question about the show or just want to say hi, feel free to call us at 929-526-3029 or email us at podcasts at all this, this podcast is part of the airwave media podcast network visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to their other fine shows like legends of the old west and redacted history until next time keep exploring
1: hello all eric Rivenus with the most notorious podcast here each week i interview an author or historian about a historical true crime tragedy or disaster Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow.